terms of right or wrong? Can you make judgments in those ways? I preached this passage around a year ago as I visited as a pastoral candidate a church in South Holland, Illinois named First CRC. I preached this passage just about one year ago, a little bit more, uh, and it's wonderful to be reminded of all the things that God has done since then. And uh, so thank you for calling me to be your pastor. It's a great honor, a great privilege. As to whether or not I'll be preaching the exact same sermon, if I told you, there would be no fun in any of it. So you're going to have to listen and test your 12-month memory to see if it's, if it's all the exact same thing or not. Luke 6, beginning in verse 37. This is God's word given to his people for their good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. We have heard the word relativism used to describe our world today. That is, moral relativism. Each person can define what is right and wrong for themselves. But if we think about it, that is probably not the most accurate term that describes our world. It's better to use a word that I came across recently. This is not my own term, but I have seen it in a couple different places now. It's called this, non-judgmentalism. Non-judgmentalism. For people are not morally relativistic in every sense. There, there are many ways in which people are quite concerned to enforce a strict code. And we see this even throughout our own society. That strict code really comes down to one foundational maxim or rule. One thing that seems to be enforced in many 
parts of our society today, and that is this. If you judge anyone, if you pass judgment on anyone or anything, you are horribly insensitive and are subject to all kinds of names and labels. There are also some people, both inside the church and out, who believe that Christianity is rooted in this idea of non-judgmentalism. In our passage today, Jesus tells us not to judge. And so is that what he meant? Was he taking away uh, the, the ability of everyone to make judgments on things, decide whether they're right or wrong, what is good or bad? Is this what Jesus is saying? I read an article recently where an author was riding on a city bus and to the shock of many people, right in the middle of this bus ride, one of the people who was on the bus uh, began in front of everyone else, seemingly with no concern, just uh, took out some illegal and hard and illicit drugs and started taking them in front of everyone else. And the author reflected that no one said anything to him which is amazing, but he said it was because of non-judgmentalism. People are scared to pass judgment on anything, and thus things that are harmful to an individual, things that are harmful to the community, things that are harmful to the society are allowed to keep on going. Jesus in this passage is not disqualifying all judgment. He is, not, he is also not taking away the power and the blessing of the state, which has been given the sword, to mete out justice, to punish evildoers. Jesus is not taking all of that away. He is doing something in this passage that's very consistent with what he has been doing in Luke all throughout. He is turning our gaze inwards. He is turning our gaze towards ourselves in order to make a universal truth claim that no one is any higher on the ladder of righteousness than anyone else. In regards to sin, he's leveling the playing field. He's turning our gaze inward towards ourselves. That's the universal truth claim, but he also gives commandments to his people. So what he says that is true is true for everyone, but the commandments that he gives in this sermon are for his people. And these are tough commandments. So how do we understand all of these commandments that Jesus gives? We understand them this way. Jesus gives the commandments of his kingdom. The, the, the rules and the, the ethical responsibilities of his kingdom because he transforms the citizens of his kingdom. Jesus gives the commandments of his kingdom because he transforms the citizens of his kingdom. And it comes down to this central truth. When the judge of all the world shows you grace, then the acquitted should too. When the judge shows grace, the acquitted should too. Let's look together at this passage from Jesus, we'll look at these first two verses where Jesus tells us to judge not, condemn not, forgive, and give. These words, of course, follow directly from the passage that we looked at last week where Jesus calls us to love our enemies and those within the kingdom of God, which is essentially new creation. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, what he's talking about is new creation. And people who are within this kingdom are to be merciful even as their Father in heaven is merciful. It's rooted in the mercy of God. It's rooted in seeing your identity and your relation to God as one that is founded upon his mercy. This is a key idea. We'll return to it a, a little later on. But that's the fundamental conviction of what Jesus has been saying in the Sermon on the Mount. You are something 
because of God's mercy. God's mercy is the launch pad from which his people show mercy. We were once God's enemies, and he treated us as friends. So we show forth the same to those who are around us, and we love our enemies. Jesus says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given unto you. This sounds like what Jesus has said last week regarding the golden rule. And it sounds like he's describing harmonious relationships between people, right? There is this give and take. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Do not condemn, you will not be condemned. Societies all throughout the world at Jesus' time and even since then have recognized that if your citizens live according to the golden rule, your social problems will be minimized. If there is this give and take, this ability, uh, this willingness to be merciful to those around you. But remember from last week that Jesus not only prescribes the golden rule, but he says for us to go beyond it. And within the, the assumption of the golden rule, of course, is that there is this mutuality. But Jesus tells us to be merciful even to our enemies, even to those who hate us and who seek to do ill towards us. This is the extravagant, the superabundant ethic of the kingdom of God, rooted in the foundational mercy of God. We are to be merciful even to our enemies. In the context of Luke, who is Jesus addressing in particular here when he says, do not judge, do not condemn, forgive, and it will be forgiven? Is he addressing any group of people that we've seen a lot in the gospel of Luke? I believe he is. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we've seen in every story they're taking every opportunity they can to trap Jesus in his words or to trap Jesus in his actions. They're looking for something that he has done that they can scrutinize, something of which they can be critical and bring it up to hurl accusations at Jesus and his people. Remember when his disciples do something on the Sabbath and it creates a big controversy. Remember when Jesus is hanging out with what the Pharisees call tax collectors and sinners. And they hurl all these accusations at Jesus, saying he must not be teaching the truth because of the people he associates himself with. Jesus is addressing the mentality of the Pharisees. He is talking about the Pharisees, for this is what they do. They judge, they condemn, they show unwillingness to forgive. They show unwillingness to be generous. Thus, Jesus is not telling his people that judgment, in a very general sense, can never be made in in life. We make judgments all the time. Nor is he telling us that certain spheres of life, like the law, the state, and those who protect us, cannot make judgments between what is right and what is wrong. You can imagine how hard it would be for a law enforcement officer to try and enforce the law if he were to operate by non-judgmentalism, if he couldn't couldn't decide what was right and what was wrong. So Jesus is not saying, disqualifying any of these things. What he is telling us is this, that the people of God, the kingdom of God, as we relate to each other and as we seek to show this mercy and grace to those around us, What he is telling us is that we must reject the mentality of the Pharisees, which is an eagerness and an obsession of having a critical eye towards others and never having any critical evaluation of yourself. That's the problem. Always pointing the finger and never pointing the thumb. How true Jesus' words ring in our ears. 
They remind us of our own sinful nature, that our default setting in many ways is like the Pharisees, isn't it? It's so easy for us to live that way. Think about how easy it is to spend a day at home with your family members nitpicking every little thing that they do, being critical towards every little thing that they do, and finding something wrong in it, finding something that could anger you or frustrate you. Meanwhile, you never engage in any self-reflection. You never turn your gaze inwards. Because when we do that, that's what stops us from doing all of that, doesn't it? When we condemn, when we judge, when we're critical of others and not towards ourselves, we, say we act one way, but when we turn our gaze inwards, it softens our hearts to those around us because we're reminded of the mercy that God has shown us. Our society, in many ways, has ratcheted up the intensity on having a critical eye, and a lot of it stems from good intentions. People want things to be peaceful and better and people to be treated well. But in many ways, our society has ratcheted up the intensity. Now, everything that people say at any time is subjected to a hyper-scrutiny, really. One oddly worded comment often sets off a firestorm calling for somebody to be fired from their job or all kinds of reactions labeling that person as bigoted or sexist or racist. All of these labels that we want to throw onto people because we're being hypercritical towards everyone, because we're scrutinizing everything that people say, because that is our default setting, to be like the Pharisees, to judge, to condemn. And yet when we sit down with someone face to face, when we seek to be understanding of them, when we receive the things that they say with the assumption that they're not being intentionally malicious towards us, how different we wade through all of their words. Isn't that true? Sit down face to face uh, with graciousness, with mercy, how different our interactions with people can be. This is one of the ways in which God's people can truly be a countercultural community that we relate to one another and we seek to relate to all of the people that God brings into our lives with this posture of mercy, this posture of a, a willingness and a readiness to forgive, of not being hypercritical towards everyone and seeking to scrutinize everything that they say. We are not to succumb to our need to engage in that kind of judgment. In many ways, it's a way to prop ourselves up, isn't it? We find that, that we want to be critical of others because for a little while it makes us feel better about ourselves. It's exactly what happens later on in Luke where you have the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying. And the Pharisee, of course, prays to God and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, <laughs> extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. This is not a good way to pray, by the way. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the universal truth claim that Jesus is making. Our sin plus God's mercy equals the need to humble ourselves. Even just our sin. Our sin equals the need to humble ourselves. But especially for those who have, who have known the mercy of God, our sin plus God's mercy equals the need to humble ourselves. This is opposite the 
the framework, the worldview, the approach of self-righteousness. It is opposite all of that. The Pharisees were obsessed of criticizing others to the point where they were blind towards their own sin. And, and Jesus is saying that the, the place where you start, the first thing is seeing your own sin before you see the sin of others. This explains the first two proverbs of Jesus, doesn't it? A blind man cannot lead a blind man. The implication is that the Pharisees are blind to their own sin. So how can they teach you anything about eternal truth, anything about God, if they're starting in the exact wrong place? Those who do not acknowledge their own sin are unfit to teach anyone or lead anyone to an ultimate truth. And if you think and live like the Pharisees, you are missing really the entire message of God's word from beginning to end, which is the universality of sin. Sin is everywhere. Sin is is done and committed by everyone and the need for repentance. So Jesus has this blind man leading a blind man with clear implications to those who teach the word of God. We should all, application other places as well, but those who teach God's word. We should all hope that ministers lead good and humble and quiet lives. And especially that they are wise enough to stave off patterns of sin in their own lives. But if those who teach God's word are to be doctors of souls, then they need to at least know what is wrong with the soul. And it needs to be what is wrong with their own soul as well. The second parable of Jesus says this, an eye surgeon will not be able to perform eye surgery if, the, if she has a beam, so the, the word for plank is really a rafter or a beam, you see a lot of them going up on our, our ceiling here, a rafter or a beam in her own eye, she will not be able to see. Similarly, one who teaches God's word, if he does not see his own sin, as being the plank in his own eye, he has no biblical doctrine of sin. The people who teach and proclaim need to start from this place, recognizing the ugliness of his own soul, the massive insufficiencies that he carries in his sinful flesh. Wonderful teacher of God's word, wonderful father of the church, Augustine, had this prayer from his book, Confessions, and he says this, Who am I? What kind of man am I? What evil have I not done? Or if there is evil that I have not done, what evil is there that I have not spoken? Or if there is any that I have not spoken, what evil is there that I have not willed to do? Sin pervading all of our hearts. Our sin plus God's mercy equals the need to humble ourselves before God. So here are some questions to ask yourself. As we examine ourselves in regards in light of Jesus' commandments, are we more willing to forgive than than to pass judgment? Are we more willing to forgive than to pass judgment? Are we more willing to examine our own sin than we are to notice someone else's sin? Are you a person who is ready to give because you know that your ultimate inheritance is laid up for you in heaven? So you have a different relationship with earthly goods, a lot of things which come from God's hand and our great blessings. But we have a different relationship with earthly goods because our treasure is in heaven. Are you willing to endure great injury to yourself before you inflict harm on another insofar as Christ has done that 
for you. It's rooted in the, in the truth of seeing your own faults above others. Seeing your own faults above others. My sin will always be greater to me than your sin will be to me. And if everyone has that mentality, my sin will be greater to me than your sin will ever be to me. If we all have that mentality, then we are living as Jesus has called us to. That's why Paul calls himself the foremost of sinners. Certainly, if we took a look at all the things that the Apostle Paul did with his time, we probably wouldn't come to the same conclusion. But Paul calls himself the foremost of sinners because he is adopting this Christ-centered, this gospel-centered view. My sin will always be greater to me than your sin will ever be to me. That's how we have God-glorifying relationships in our church, in our families, in our marriages. But who will forgive? Jesus says, do not judge, you will not be judged. Forgive, you will be forgiven. Is Jesus saying that our enemies will do all this? Is Jesus promising that you're going to kill them with kindness, right? You're going to break down all of the the walls that separate you and people that that are uh, really your enemies. No, Jesus is not saying that. He's not making an empty promise. Notice that all of these promises are in the passive voice. You will be forgiven. You will not be condemned. A lot of times in scripture when you have these passive verbs, these are called divine passives. In other words, God is the implied actor in all of these verbs. God will forgive you. God will not condemn you. It is God who will not exercise his right to judge and condemn. So the comfort for us in all of these promises by Jesus is found in a new creation perspective. A kingdom of God perspective. These are promises that partake in the everlasting age to come. This is why Jesus has this reference to a basket of grain. He says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured over into, into your lap. This is going into the marketplace and buying grain. And it's like the person who sells you the grain puts it into your basket and scrunches all of it down. You can imagine how people in the marketplace are always wanting to improve their bottom line, and so uh, they're not going to give you an overabundance of their product. That's always the temptation, right? Jesus says that the mercy of God is like going into the marketplace and and, and buying grain, and and the owner puts it in your basket, smushes all of it down so you can fit way more, and doesn't even level off the top. It's overflowing. Because we show people imperfect mercy. We show people imperfect grace. But God shows us a perfect grace that is always overflowing. The psalmist says, my cup runneth over. You prepareth prepareth for me a banquet, a feast that you have laid out. In the presence of my enemies, my cup runs over. So we must forgive as our Heavenly Father has forgiven us. We must love because we have been forgiven forgiven much. We must not pass judgment because the judgment of God has passed over us. Because the judgment of God is in our past. There is no future judgment for those who are in Christ. So we do not pass judgment as God would would have passed judgment on us. Thus we come to this next parable of Jesus regarding a tree and its fruit. A good tree brings forth good fruit, a bad tree brings forth bad fruit. You will know a tree by its fruit. Jesus is teaching us two things here. Behavior matches character, 
and character precedes action. In verse 45, Jesus likens the human heart as the the, the seed of our character, the, the fountain of all of these things. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it's not just the words that we say. For earlier in verse 45, Jesus says that we bring either good or evil out of the state of our hearts. So it is thoughts and words and actions. There are both good hearts and evil hearts. And what the heart brings forth, what it produces, tells you what kind of heart it is. We should pause here and and consider all of the things that Jesus has said in this sermon and all the things that he has said in our passage so far today. Because it seems like with some of the things that Jesus is saying that it, it almost as if there is a conditionality to all of these things. In other words, we wonder, is Jesus saying, if you do not judge, then you will not be judged? So we worry about that. Is there this, this conditionality? Moreover, is Jesus saying that the test of fruits is absolute and always perfect? In other words, if you ever do something that seems like it would come forth from an evil heart, does that mean you have an evil heart? Is Jesus drawing this firm line in the sand? Is this test of fruits always absolute and exact? So to the first observation then, is Jesus attaching this conditionality to all of the things that he is saying? We must remember where this passage is in Jesus' sermon, shouldn't we? How did the sermon on the plain in Luke begin? It began with blessing. We talked a couple weeks ago about how Jesus leads with grace. It's the different rhythm of this new covenant. Jesus leading with grace and saying, Blessed are you. Blessed are the poor. For they shall find God. They shall shall be blessed of God. Jesus doesn't say, The poor will be blessed if. So Jesus has begun this sermon by pronouncing blessings. He begins with grace and then he gives the commandments. So all of these commandments by Jesus come with the assumption that we're talking about someone who has been made part of the kingdom of God, who has experienced the blessings of forgiveness and the salvation of the kingdom. Jesus says in Matthew, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say you need to become the salt of the earth. You need to become the light of the world. He says you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. One theologian put it this way, said the new man of the Sermon on the Plain is a present reality. In other words, Jesus is speaking to those who have been made new. Jesus is speaking to those in his new creation kingdom. Therefore, the keeping of these commandments is the fruit, it is the natural result of the salvation of the kingdom. It is a love and obedience that proceeds forth from forgiveness. Matthew 18 is another parable that illustrates this point. Remember the parable of the wicked servant where there is a servant who owes 10,000 talents to his master, which is an enormous amount of money. And he begs his master to forgive him. And the master, not only does he just delay payment, but he forgives the debt of his servant completely wipes it away. And what does the servant do? He goes forth and he finds somebody who owes him a hundred denarii, which is a much, much less uh, figure. And that person cannot pay him. And that person asks the servant for patience, but the servant does not give it to him. And then 
As Jesus tells it, the master hears of this, goes to his servant, and he says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Jesus is saying that the mercy of God always comes first. The assurance, the salvation of the kingdom is always where we begin. Blessed are you. And for all of those who find that to be true in and of themselves, then these commandments come. A spirit-empowered commandment. Spirit-wrought acts of obedience. To the second observation is this illustration of of a tree and its fruit. Is it always absolute? Is it always exact? What if I ever do something that seems like it comes forth out of an evil heart? Does that mean I have an evil heart? Does that mean I have no hope? We should use Jesus' own illustration. Because just because a tree is good does not mean that it does not need to be pruned. Good trees still need to be pruned. Good trees still have branches and parts of branches that the tree abandons and no longer uses to bring forth its fruit. Jesus says exactly this in John chapter 15. If you abide in me, if you are in me, my Father will prune you. This can be a painful, arduous, long, imperfect process, right? It's painful to be pruned. Involves all kind of refining, which is a trial by fire. But we need to be pruned. Thus, Jesus is not teaching us that every single thing that a human being ever does must always be in accord with this illustration of good fruit and bad fruit. We think ourselves of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 who says, The very thing that I do not want to do, that is what I do. And Paul says, Wretched man that I am. We've all heard it said that people don't change, right? People don't change. You you, you are what you are. And it is this mentality that tends to get us frightened with the words of Jesus. It will take away from our assurance because so many times with regards to our struggles with sin, we can be resigned to this mentality of I am what I am. If we ever do something bad, are we a bad tree? Can we ever change if we see patterns of sin? Or is it just true that we are what we are? Let's look at a letter like 1 John. 1 John has such clear poles of difference between light and darkness, sin and righteousness, God and the devil, and it puts the people of God on the better side of all of those things. You are part of the light. You are righteous. We are the children of God. We heard that even as we read the law and heard the assurance of grace this morning. And so First John takes a very serious stance on how we live, and yet it does not teach us that people are what they are. They just, they just are that way and they never can change. That there's never any change over time in our character or holiness. To be in Christ, to grow in the faith, sanctification, that's, what we, that's the big word we use for it. Sanctification is change. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The priesthood of Jesus, we reflected on that today. 
And the priesthood of Jesus assures us that because of the perfection of Jesus Christ, he stands in the gap of all of our imperfections. This is good news because the commandments of Jesus, this whole sermon on the plain that he has given, all of his commandments, which come forth out of the blessings, all of these things are not easy. They are in many ways even more difficult than the commandments we find elsewhere because Jesus goes down to the very root. Jesus goes to the heart. All kinds of examples in Matthew where it says it's not just murder, it's anger. It's not just adultery, it's lust. Jesus goes even deeper These commandments are not easy to return to the church father, Augustine, as you reflected on this, the commandments of Jesus, the way we're called to live as those who have been been made part of God's kingdom. He said this, God bids us to do what we cannot. In other words, we cannot perfectly follow all of these commandments. God bids us to do what we cannot so that we may know what we ought to seek from him. That's what it does. It teaches us what we must seek from God. So what is it that we seek from him? What is it that God offers us that has power against sin in our lives, that gives us the power for real change in our lives? 1 John, again, tells us that God commands us to believe in the name of Jesus Christ because even his name has power. Jesus Christ is the power of salvation. And it is his power, not ours, that makes change possible. So, when we think to ourselves, I am what I am, you are what you are, tell yourself, no. Jesus is who he is. When you're weighed down with thoughts of your sin, your struggle against sin, and you say, I am what I am, think to yourself, no. Jesus is who he is. In the face of all of these commands, which we cannot do, which we cannot perfectly keep, we must throw ourselves upon the redemptive power of Jesus. Throw ourselves upon him. It is resting in Christ that the Spirit grants us that which we cannot do ourselves. Jesus is who he is. Jesus is better. Jesus is first. Jesus is most. Christ offers something that we cannot do ourselves. Something that is greater than me, it's greater than you, it's greater than Augustine, it's greater than modern humanism, it's greater than non-judgmentalism. He gives us himself. He gives us the power of God unto salvation. In this sermon we see Jesus Christ as the lawgiver. The great lawgiver, the one who speaks these, these searing commandments that go down to our heart and reveal all of these little imperfections. We see him as the lawgiver, but we must never forget That to us, to us who look upon Jesus in faith, Jesus is the great law keeper. He is not only lawgiver, he is law keeper. He is the one who even at this point, at this sermon, has gone out into the desert and he has stared into the face of the devil and he has said no. He has said no to all of the wiles of the devil. He has already shown himself to be the obedient one for us. Thus we hear Jesus' words in, in this sermon And we are called in a very real way to put them into practice. Not for our own sake and not by our own power, but because we are built upon the solid foundation of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Christ is our firm foundation. Christ is our place to stand. When we build ourselves upon the foundation of Christ, we build upon a firm 
foundation. Jesus has led with grace. He has told us to image the greater mercy of our Heavenly Father. And that mercy is found most clearly. Where is the mercy of God found? Where do we see it? It's found most clearly in the God-man who has been speaking all of these words to us. The one who speaks and gives this law is the one who kept the law. He is the great lawgiver, the great law keeper. He is our foundation. To build your house upon the rock is to build your house upon Jesus Christ. And when we are found on him, we will withstand all of the storms that rage because the foundation is not ourselves. The foundation is the mercy of God as it's found in Jesus Christ. Therefore, because he is not shaken, we will not be shaken. And on the last day, with Jesus Christ, we will stand. Amen. Let's pray. We serve you, a great and matchless and mighty God, Father. May we build upon the foundation already laid, Jesus Christ, the great cornerstone, the foundation of our faith, the foundation of this church, the foundation of the universal church. Father, as you bring us into new obedience by the power of your Spirit, may we always do it by faith. May we always look to Jesus Christ who covers the imperfections even in the things that we do that are in accord with your law. He is pleading for us even now. Our names are written on his hands. The great high priest, the shepherd of our souls, our great savior. In his name we pray, amen. The one who has ascended the mountain of God is Jesus Christ. He has gone.